Welcome to the Cybersecurity Simplified Podcast, where we take the mystery out of today's top security threats and solutions. We are all well aware that a cyber attack can take a heavy toll on an organization's financial and reputational status. But what about the emotional toll on the employees who have had to work through it? Our guests today are here to talk about just that. Ed Vasco is the director at Boise State University's Institute for Pervasive Cybersecurity. He is here with fellow Bronco, Carol Barks, who is an expert on neuroscience-based conflict resolution and communication. Stay tuned for a compelling discussion on the human side of surviving a cyber attack on this episode of Cybersecurity Simplified. Hey, friends, thank you for joining us. I'm Susanna Song. And I'm Dave Barton. Hey, Dave, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. And today we have an exceptional episode. I mean, we we just introduced Ed and Carol. Thank you for being with us today, guys. Thank you for the opportunity. Glad to be here. Super happy to join you. Yeah, and it's, it's an important topic that's often overlooked, right? So we know, we always say it's not if, but when a cyber breach is to happen. And so you think about the, the cyber front uh, first respond, responders, rather, who are dealing with the breaches, the incidents. Uh, Ed, why don't you first introduce Carol and how you, the two of you guys kind of came together to address this very important topic. Yeah, no, thanks, Susanna. Um, so I joined Boise State in uh, 2020 from a non-traditional uh, career perspective. I've spent 30 years in industry, in the cybersecurity industry, um, both as a cyber entrepreneur, but then also helping organizations um, put programs in place and really keeping our cyber cyber adversaries at bay, so to speak. Um, and in joining Boise State, uh, you know, part of my role is to partner um, and. I had a chance, had an opportunity to speak at a national conference, RSA, and uh, was looking for some uh, somebody to help in regards to understanding um, kind of the neuroscience of, of our cybersecurity workforce. And, uh, you know, Carol, uh, when I kind of put the word out amongst the, the, the staff and the faculty that I had been working with at the time, everybody said, you need to go talk to Carol. Because <laughs> it was almost a match made in heaven in terms of kind of the general perspective of what we were looking at, what we were trying to accomplish, and what I was being asked to, to kind of look at from a, a topic perspective and Carol's background. And, and uh, not only did does Carol have a, a phenomenal background from a, a just a neuroscience perspective, but she also um, it has, and I don't want to steal her thunder by this, but she also has been a first responder herself. And so this wonderful dovetailing of uh, physical first responder, um, you know, on, on the uh, fire side, uh, mm-hmm. and then also uh, just the neuroscience and understanding what our workforce is going through through these stressors just was a phenomenal, uh, a phenomenal match. And I was really, really pleased to, to know she's at Boise State and um, that she has uh, joined with me on two different topics. Um, one was first responders and kind of understanding the, the, the challenges and stressors that our first responders from a cyber perspective go through and what the mm-hmm. similarities between um, physical world first responders and cyber first responders look like. But then also we've had a chance to do a topic around the C-suite and what's the C-suite going through? What are our executives going through 
from a neural perspective and how can we as cyber professionals best respond to uh, some of those stressors that the C-suite has. So Carol, I don't know if you wanna add anything to that. I, I hope I did you justice. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. That was fantastic. I think what's really fun for me is I don't normally operate in the world of cybersecurity. I deal with organizations all over the world for peak performance and dealing with conflict and communication. But it really has been a really fun blending of pulling out my previous career of being a firefighter in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so there's so many similarities and the response has been really overwhelming. It's been information that I get emails almost regularly, like daily, weekly on, can you give me more information? Can you, can you provide my organization with more tips? So it's been a really fun exploration and an intersection of all of this information and working with Ed to provide the technical side. It, we're just a pretty cool team to, mm -hmm. to, to bridge this because he's so knowledgeable for security that it's fun to, to blend these two in a way that hasn't happened before. Yeah, let's let's start from the beginning. You know, let's let's get right to it. Carol, you know, what happens when a breach happens? The SOC guys, everyone's looking at them. The C-suite's looking at them. Uh, what what are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to handle the pressure, the stress? Am I going to lose my job? Yeah, it, absolutely. So that's where our brains um, really take over. So there's a, a, it's without getting too far into the trenches of neuroscience, essentially what happens is I'm day to day thinking 98 to 99% of it happens unconscious to us. Our brain knows what's going on, but it filters information and then pops out information that we claim as our own, but it's really been percolating under the hood for quite some time. And so then what happens is when we are stressed, the, that one to 2% that normally is our genius decision-making part of our brain is actually shut down by a part of our brain called the limbic system. And there's these two little um, parts of our limbic system called the amygdala. And that's where our fight or flight responses mm -hmm. come from. And because we were really interested in speed for surviving, we respond to threat the same way we did back in our caveman time when we were trying to escape warring tribes or saber-toothed tigers. So it's all about speed and it's all about reaction. So the problem is, is that we shut down all those things that we know to do we start reacting. And as humans, we are just fantastic reaction machines, but we're not necessarily making the most brilliant decisions at that point. And so really when we're talking, it's really about how do we minimize that fight or flight response for everybody that's involved in having to mitigate this attack in a way that helps us be more productive. Yeah. David, can you shed light? Has this, has this happened to you? I mean, what what experience have you gone through as a CISO and being in cybersecurity for 20 plus years? I, I have been at the front of multiple security events across my career. Um, you know, the, it's interesting. There, there is a distinct difference between where the C-suite are and what, what we're thinking about when those events happen versus the guy or gal who's working on the event as it occurs. 
you know, we're thinking about uh, reputation. We're thinking about stock price. We're thinking about financials. Um, and, and that's because those are the measurements we're held to. And our people are thinking about protection. And, and at the end of the day, we have to blend those two and, and, and love to get Carol's perspective on how we do that. Um, you know, having said that, I have seen the fight or flight uh, when an event happens. And it's, you know, even amongst tenured, experienced cybersecurity professionals, when a crap hits a fan, everything, everything goes off the table. Right? All the professionalism and all the courtesy and all the crap that we learn and that we put in, and I'm not calling it crap, but let me rewind. All the stuff we put into our day-to-day conversations with people is immediately out the door. And it's very consistent with fight, right? Because if you think about, there's, there's a reason why chain of command in the military is in place. It's not for when all the good stuff's happening. It's for when the bad stuff happens. Because when the bad stuff happens, I need to make a decision. I need you to execute that decision at this moment, at this time, without any conversation, right? And that's fight or flight because I'm fighting at this point or I'm preparing to flight and I need response. And in the cyber world, it's no different. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's, and I'll lead with a story. There's, there's, depending on who you talk to uh, amongst the C-suite in any organization, the job with the least amount of average tenure is a CISO. Right. We we stay in jobs two and a half years in most cases, two, two to three years. If you're lucky, it's past three. Um, and it's because it's one of the hardest jobs out there because I don't get to go home and sleep in a lot of cases. I'm working around the clock. Um, I have a really funny infographic that shows four beds and, and there's a CEO and he is asleep in bed and the CFO is asleep in bed and the COO is asleep in bed and the CISO is empty. The bed is empty. That's because they're not sleeping, they're working. <clears throat> and so there's a lot of pressure. We we have the same financial pressures that yeah, I was gonna, all uh, the other C-suite has yeah, because ahead. we have to deliver no, no, results. Ahead, but we have this other piece that's probably more risky, which is we got to protect the company, right? The CFO, they're, they're protecting their investment, yes, but it's not the same thing as protecting people, protecting assets, protecting environments. It's a different game. And it takes a different person, in my opinion, to be really good at that. So I could talk about this all day, Susanna, but people don't want to hear me. They want to hear from Ed and Carol. Oh, and I love, I gosh, I totally, David, I could nerd out on this with you all day long and talk about it. And I just am so excited about it. But I'm just going to go off of some of the things that you said, because they're relevant. One of the things that I see that happens is all of a sudden, when we have a breach, now we're looking for who are we going to hang this on, right? Is it going to be my job? Is it going to be somebody else's job? Where is it at? So then we, in essence, compound the problem, right? So now the problem isn't just the breach. The problem is that we're now infighting about the breach and that doesn't help anything. 
at all. You know, it just creates another secondary negotiation and issue to deal with. So a lot of that really has to be that we're either a team or we're not. And we're a team all the time. And that has to start before you have a breach. So I remember I was a brand new firefighter in Redwood City. Um, An alarm would go off and I'd run around like a chicken with my head cut off because I was like, oh, I've got to go save the day. I got to go. I got to go. And my senior partner at that time would grab me by the back of the coat and would say, this isn't your emergency. This is their emergency. And slow is fast. And we've got you. We're all a team. We're going to get through this. And I think that's one of the things that would really benefit is when this happens, it's a bummer. And when we get through it, we'll figure out what we can do better. But right now, the story that I'm going to tell you is that you're not the problem. You're not the problem. The problem is the breach. And we are all on the same side of the table. And we all trust and believe that we're all doing our best. So a lot of it can be that messaging so that when that happens, I'm not stressed about my job and the breach, which my brain doesn't do very well with multitasking both of those things. And then the next thing I would tell you is about that lack of sleep. So there's some research that neuroscientist, one of my colleagues, John Medina, talks about that when you lose, we all as humans need about seven to nine hours of sleep. When you lose that in one night, you lose your cognitive capacity by 30%. And if you lose it a second night, it drops 60%. Right. And it takes about a week on average for that to, to recover. Get Board, Yeah. So when you need to have every part of your brain functioning so you can figure out what to do with this, it's important that we figure out if an attack happens, this is how we're going to manage the schedule so that everybody can get some rest. Because another important thing that happens with sleep is our brain consolidates neurons and information. So we take what we're bringing in with what we already know. And that's where you wake up with those bright ideas in the morning. But if we don't give our brain a a little bit of downtime, we're losing the opportunity to use that 98, 99%. So it's really in structuring, how is my team going to respond? Yeah, I think part of that, I'll I'll jump on in really quick and just add, I think one of the key elements at the C-suite that I've seen over my career, most organizations um, put aside is they don't necessarily try to include key members of the C-suite into the planning process. And so suddenly the C-suite comes into the door, you know, into the room or is made aware of the breach and they're not thinking in that same vein as the rest of the team has been sure. taught or been w- worked through this scenario, be it a tabletop or mm. you know a, a, a live breach, whatever the case may be. But that lack of inclusion uh, of the C-suite can oftentimes create more issues uh, for the team and more issues for the cyber leader, CISO or otherwise, in the organization. So that you know ultimately, you end up in a position where the C-suite you know, moves into a panic state because as Carol said, and as you said, David, you know, the thought process is not necessarily on the breach of the moment and, and working as a team, the thought process is reputation, shareholder impact, um, financial risk. Um, right. Do even, I have to notify? Yeah. Which is what I mean, nobody wants to do. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and do I even have a job at the end of this? 
you know, and, and that's, and that's, you know, good or bad, the resultant of a uh, result of, of other large scale breaches that have occurred over throughout the years, you know, that move then from, you know, uh, uh, panic into anger, kind of moving through the, the, the general process of, of kind of grief. the grief, yeah. uh, you know, but that panic turning into anger means that there's likely going to be some level of overreaction somewhere. You know, and then I think these are these are the types of situations where the C-suite can have such a, a a ramification and such a huge impact upon the team itself that I come back to that kind of core thing of as as leaders we need to make certain we're including the C-suite even in this in so much as saying if not them directly somebody that they trust within their respective team. So that that person can be made the delegate to go pull the C-suite person, you know, whoever, COO, CFO, CEO, whatever, pull them aside and get them out of the, uh, the, the real intensive uh, uh, emotional environment of a breach. And I know Carol's talked to, talked to many of those things, both from a cyber leader perspective, as well as, you know, um, how to handle that C-suite that's in those kind of modes. So. Yeah, Carol, did you want to add to that? I do. I do. Thanks so much. <laughs> Can you tell? I'm like, okay, be be a sharer of time. But yeah, I do. Uh, so one of the things that's really important to remember is that um, all humans have this tendency that if we don't have all the dots connected, we go and create these evil plot twists. And so it's so important to connect the dots for everyone, whether they are our um, shareholders, whether they are other stakeholders, whether they have a management team, we want to connect as many dots as we can. And even if those dots say we don't have all the answers to all those dots, but here's what we're doing, it helps people create these overreactions that, oh my gosh, we're going to dump these shares or everybody's fired or what have you. So I really want people to learn that this is not a time to stop communicating. This is a time to over communicate. This is what's going on now. This is what we're doing because that is what brings everyone more peace. So if you Mm -hmm. think of like a a really simple example is if I said um, I was your boss and I said, hey, can I see you in my office? Nobody ever says, woohoo, this is great. I'm getting a a raise, right? Everybody's like, what did I do? Like, them. It's the same thing in these moments. But because we have that added fight or flight response, it's amplified. So we really want to And if we can do those in the beginning, where we say, when this happens, this is what you can expect to have unroll, it will really help people do better in managing it without having those knee jerk fight responses. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I would say is that when you see people start getting really ornery and really angry and really snappy, If you can, instead of going, man, they're jerks or they're like totally, you know, unsympathetic or whatever, if you can instead reframe it, that that is somebody who's in their fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. And if you can treat them with peace, and there's a a term in, in the neuroscience world that he or she who has control of their emotions 
the most wins. So Mm -hmm. if they're as mad as hell or as stressed out, but I'm channeling Mother Teresa or Gandhi, I get to win. You know, I'll get them de-escalated versus if now I'm going to go head to head with them because they're not responding the way I'd like. We just compound things. Mm -hmm. I have a quick question before we wrap things up. Ed, how does this knowledge help your students uh, at Cyberdome and at Boise State Institute? Uh, And another question to follow up with that is the more advanced tools that are coming out. Is it easier for them to digest the fact that uh, a lot of the detection and response comes from tools and there's less, I don't don't, don't know if I'm wording this correctly, but less weight on, on the person, him, you know, him or herself to take on that weight. Great question. And yeah, we, um, as part of our program, uh, with, within Boise state and our, uh, our, our, uh, rural support initiative called the Cyberdome, um, we, uh, take students into a real world environment. So we move them out of the simulational space, um, into a space where they're actually, you know, monitoring, detecting, and responding to different events for customers in a real world situation. Uh, and, and so that, is um, you know bringing being able to bring uh, you know Carol's perspectives and and her approaches to bear I think is is extremely important. Um, I know it's extremely important for our students because it helps not just put them into a situation where they um, kind of have have book knowledge. They actually can apply it. Mm-hmm. Um, they can actually apply the knowledge and apply the time and experience and apply these lessons into a into a situation where you're not just dealing with business, but you're also dealing with, uh, you know, uh, you know res- residents of, of particular communities and who are generally speaking, very non-technical. Uh, right. And so as a result of that, you have a double layer uh, of opportunity uh, being, yeah. being presented by our students. And I'd say, you know, as it relates to tools, um, you know, certainly if I look back over my 30 year career, you know, uh, the, the role of an analyst has shifted so much, you know, you, you don't, you're not looking at raw logs. What you're looking at are, uh, you know, resultant analysis being done by the platform, you know, uh, as an industry, we're heavily leveraging uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the tools and platforms are out there uh, to help us do that. Um, the challenge though, is, is that, you know, there's a lot more information that can be piped into the system. So, the analysis process doesn't necessarily change uh, from 30 years ago, but it, what it does, it just moves up a layer of abstraction and helps us accelerate how quickly we can identify uh, and, and be able to respond to an event. Uh, you know, and so, you know, we're, we're definitely leveraging, um, you know, as many of the pieces of technology as we can in our programs, uh, uh, those kinds of technologies and AI that gives us a chance to help train our students on what to do, not just from a neuroscience perspective, but also from a, a, a tool set standpoint that they'll be using out in their in their careers, and then strong partners. You know that's that's always that's always so important for us. Um, you know, be it a high wire networks where David's at, or uh, Stellar Cyber, um, or any others that are out there in the market that partner with us. Awesome, David. Any any last comment? You know, I was thinking about what the last comment might be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, first of all, Ed and Carol, I appreciate you guys joining mm-hmm. us today because we we typically focus on the hard stuff, the, the, 
And even though we make it simple, it, it's the heart, the, the technical stuff. Today we're talking about the soft stuff, right? And and Carol, you you described it brilliantly. It's it's you know the matter that's in between your ears. And I would argue, and, and I would just pr- put forward that companies need to have a plan around the soft stuff when the bad thing happens, right? Because anybody in our industry, we're going to tell you it's it's not if it's when. And so part of the win should be, how do we deal with the soft stuff? Mm-hmm. How do we prepare our people when fight and flight happens to respond? How do we get them out of their own way? Because, you know, Carol, Carol talked about that. We forget all of the stuff that we've been doing, and it's just a matter of survival. And there's more to it than that. I think the second piece is our organizations have to be better with culture. It can't be a culture of, it's your fault. I mean, mm-hmm. Ed will tell you he he could probably pull off risk reports that he's written for the last 20 years that nobody read. And when the bad thing happens and he pulls it out and says, I told you, they're going to go, yeah, but it's still your fault. And so we've got to move away from a culture of blame to a culture of why did it happen? How did it happen? How do we stop it from happening? It's one of the things I love about my boss. And he may never watch this podcast and I'm fine with that. <laughs> is he's not about blame. He's about what happened, how did it happen, and how do we stop it from happening again? Mm-hmm. And that's got to be that culture in an organization if you want it to be healthy enough to survive the win. And I'll I'll stop yeah. there because like Carol, I think I could geek out on this all day. <laughs> <laughs> the buck stops here, right? That's it. Yep. Yeah. And Carol, I- you and I and, and Ed too, we're, we're going to put together a blog and continue this conversation. We'll take some excerpts of, of today's episode. One last uh, thing I want Ed to touch on is Cyberdome. So many of you write David and I because you, you love lis- listening to us in the, in the few episodes we've done around cyber careers, but Ed uh, oversees Cyberdome. So tell our viewers and our listeners how they can learn more about Cyberdome. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Susanna. And again, thank you to you and and David, and and uh, definitely huge thanks as always to Carol. Um, the, this this particular topic is just so important, um, and thank you all for time and opportunity. Um, so you know, when I joined Boise State two years ago, I had a, a coming from a thirty year career as a C suite, um, you know, executive and and uh, as a business business operator owner myself. Um, I knew that there was an opportunity to really try to transform what academia and what higher education is providing to the industry. Uh, that mean that uh, that being that you know we've been getting students, workers, early stage career workers into the industry who really aren't quite ready for work. They get some simulational experience. Uh, they get some great knowledge in the classroom. Uh, they get a little bit of skill set. But truly, it, they don't really get that real-world experience. And so coming into Boise State, I, I wanted to try to tackle getting our students getting our students ready in the same fashion that the medical field does. And that just happened to dovetail with a second uh, real important um, uh, thesis and a real important need that we have across, across the country, and that is to help um, organizations that are below what I call the cybersecurity poverty line. I don't call it this as an industry. We're calling it this, and this is a new 
uh, five-year-old or so, five-year-old new trend, I'll put it that way. But what we're seeing is urban centers, large companies, even large mid-sized companies are able to afford uh, the security technologies and the team to be able to uh, you know, provide service and provide capabilities to support them. But there's this dividing line where rural communities, you know, small uh, you know, counties out in rural uh, states like Idaho can't afford the people, they can't afford the technology. Mm-hmm. And, and even at cost, even at, at commercial cost, they can't afford it. Uh, and they certainly can't afford to retain staff members that they get trained up on cyber because industry snatches them up. And so merging these two things together into this, this program called we call the Cyberdome really gives us a chance to be able to give our students almost like a Doctors Without Borders or Rural Doctor Initiative, um, Rural Nursing Initiatives. We give them a chance to work with customers that are uh, in a rural community give them a chance, give our students a chance to really get some real world experience with a non-technical audience. And ultimately we're doing good by the state and doing good for the state of Idaho uh, by helping those communities that don't have the capabilities to secure and support themselves, giving them that extra level of maturity because of the interconnectivity mm-hmm. of rural and urban centers uh, throughout the state. You know, our voting systems, for example, um, our, our, even our library systems in many states are interconnected and I can get into, get into one through <laughs> a rural, uh, expo- rural community being exposed. I can get to an urban center and start, uh, having impact there. So, you know, these two things are what would really drive the Cyberdome and this kind of message of service and message of, of giving back, but also enabling our students to become ready for the workforce and ready for our employer partners. Um, if anybody is yep. interested, uh, you know, make sure to Google Cyberdome Lincoln with Ed Vasco and, um, you know, yeah. get accredited at, if, at the if Institute. You want, if you want, Suzanne, I'll gladly send you a URL. Okay. Well, sure. awesome. Th- and, uh, yep. Thank you so much to Carol and to Ed again for their time. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. If you have feedback about today's podcast or questions, always email us at podcast at highwirenetworks.com. And be sure to join us for our next episode. Until next time, I'm Susanna Song. And I'm Dave Barton. And this is Cybersecurity Simplified. From all of us here at Overwatch by Highwire Networks, thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate the episodes you enjoyed, share, and leave us a comment. We'll catch you next time on a Cybersecurity Simplified podcast. Remember, the more you know about cybersecurity, the safer you'll be. To learn more, visit us at highwirenetworks.com slash podcasts.